Blog Talk Radio.
And welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today uh, is Sunday, uh, November the 20, November the 14th, uh, 2021. And uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the condemnation uh, by the Ethiopian government of the United States sanctions imposed on the neighboring state of Eritrea. The Afghan Union has called uh, for the Sudanese military junta to negotiate a settlement to the continuing unrest in the country. 
A Nigerian general has been killed in an attack by insurgents operating in the north of the West African state. And the son of the slain former leader of Libya, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, has announced he is running in the national elections for president next month. In the second hour, we examine the 1619 Project, uh, written by Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, which is now being republished as a book. Finally, we review some of the important issues and developments uh, in Africa and internationally. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude uh, with uh, music from the East African state of Tanzania. Uh, let's listen in. Na 
Uhuru anatupa tabu sana sana sana.
To uh, the Pan African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. <clears throat> I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and that was uh, music from uh, the East African state of Tanzania uh, from the uh, 1960s. Right now, we want to move into our Pan African Newswire segment, and of course, our lead story uh, deals uh, with the current situation in the Horn of Africa, <clears throat> and of course, the Ethiopian uh, government, uh, which has been uh, under attack uh, by uh, the Western-backed forces operating inside as well as outside the country, has issued a statement uh, condemning the U.S. Uh, State Department uh, for its imposition of sanctions against neighboring Eritrea. Now, the U.S. claims that the measure is taken in connection uh, with the ongoing violence in Ethiopia. Eritrea and Ethiopia have cooperations in a range of areas, including military. Uh, the United States Department of State on Friday announced that it is targeting Eritrean individuals over what it calls ongoing violence in Ethiopia. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken made an announcement about it on Twitter. He said uh, the United States is designating six Eritrean entities and individuals in connection with the ongoing violence in Ethiopia. The Eritrean presence in Ethiopia has exacerbated the conflict and hindered humanitarian access. Eritrea must withdraw troops immediately. Uh, that's according to Anthony Blinken of the uh, U.S. State Department. The names of the Eritrean officials targeted by the United States government are unspecified. Uh, what the U.S. calls violence in Ethiopia is an actual war on terrorist groups, the TPLF and the OLF. Both groups have been targeting civilians and have massacred thousands of civilians in the past three years. The description uh, by the Secretary of State on the ongoing violence in Ethiopia is misleading because the Ethiopian government did not make accusations regarding Eritrea. In fact, Ethiopia and Eritrea do have uh, arrangements for cooperation and partnership in a range of areas uh, after they ended the two decades long no peace, no war relations in July of 2018, as the United States seems to be losing its proxy war through the agency of the Tigray People's Liberation Front and its partner, the Oromo Liberation Front, it is taking even more aggressive steps to directly involve in the war over what uh, the Ethiopian parliament designated as terrorist organizations. The United States has been explicitly pushing the Ethiopian government to negotiate with the TPLF terrorists something that Ethiopians do not accept, even if Abiy Ahmed's government heeds to U.S. belligerence. On Friday, uh, just a day after several corporate media's outlets in the United States published narratives romanticizing military intervention in Ethiopia, a senior U.S. military officer told the BBC that the U.S. Army is ready to respond to the situation in Ethiopia from its military base in Camp Lemone in uh, Djibouti, which is also in the Horn of Africa, and shares a border uh, with uh, Ethiopia. Now, China has a military base in Djibouti as well. China and Russia have been opposing at the United Nations Security Council sanctions 
and interventions in the internal affairs of Ethiopia. Ethiopians, too, have been protesting U.S. intervention in the internal affairs of the country. The talks of direct military intervention in Ethiopia, apparently, to save the TPLF forces, is getting reactions from Ethiopians in social media. Kormela Aragawi, uh, Ethiopian-American journalist who used to report uh, for CBS, wrote in her Twitter reminder, stay strong against the multi-armed psychological warfare being waged on the Ethiopian people and, entire, and the entire Horn of Africa. Africans, like any other citizens of the world, have the right to choose their leader and protect their peace. It will be done, and God we trust, hashtag no more. Uh, many other Ethiopians are reacting to the United States interventionist policy in Ethiopia, which is now morphing into a military one. And uh, according uh, to uh, other news uh, from Ethiopia, the government of the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia denounces uh, the announcement of the United States on November the 12th 2021 to impose sanctions on the state of Eritrea, we believe the U.S. has failed to consider important facts that the TPLF uh, five rockets at a sovereign country, Eritrea, following its unprovoked attack on the northern command of Ethiopia's National Defense Forces on November 3rd of 2020. It is the sovereign right of the Eritrean government to respond to imminent danger to its territorial integrity and security. The government of Ethiopia has never lodged any grievances to the international community regarding the initial presence of Eritrean forces on its soil in defense of their territorial integrity. The prerogative to put forth such a compliant lies with the government of Ethiopia and not any other country. The government of Eritrea has evacuated its military forces from Ethiopia following the declaration of the unilateral humanitarian ceasefire by the government of Ethiopia at the end of June of 2021. The government of Ethiopia does not believe that the state of Eritrea is an impediment to sustainable peace in Ethiopia. The real and present threat to peace in Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa region is the continued belligerence and aggression of the TPLF. Uh, we reiterate that, that the international community's reluctance to strongly condemn the destabilizing roles of the TPLF has emboldened the terrorist group. If the purpose of sanctions is to compel parties to cease their destabilizing actions, the Ethiopian government strongly believes that the real target for sanctions and further tougher sanctions by the U.S. government and the greater international community should be directed towards uh, the TPLF. We therefore implore uh, the U.S. government to rescind its decision to impose sanctions on the state of Eritrea and to take actions against the real root cause of the current challenges in Ethiopia, which is the TPLF. The chairperson of the African Union Commission, Musa Faki, called on the military authorities in the Republic of Sudan to start negotiations aimed at restoring constitutional order. He said that, quote, the chairperson reiterate his call to the military authorities of Sudan to engage without further delay in a political process leading to the return of constitutional order in line with the constitutional decree agreed on, on in August of 2019 and the Juba Agreement for Peace in Sudan on October 3rd of 2020. Uh, that was uh, said in a statement uh, just on Friday. 
On November 6th, the African Union Peace and Security Council suspended Sudan's membership uh, in the region's organization after the October 25th military coup in violation of the African Union brokered constitutional declaration of uh, August the 17th of 2019. And that, of course, uh, was supposed to govern the transitional process. The Peace and Security Council of the African Union said the suspension would continue until the reestablishment of a civilian-led authority. However, coup leaders continue to detain Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdak, his prominent advisors, and cabinet members as well as other uh, political leaders. And just on yesterday, demonstrators took to the streets in various uh, Sudanese states uh, to voice their rejection of the military coup that overthrew the civilian-led transitional government. The restrictions of Internet services made it difficult to communicate with the protest movement outside the Sudanese capital to cover the fourth demonstration against the October 25th coup d'etat. According to medical reports, five protesters were killed in Khartoum State, uh, four with bullets, and the fifth after inhaling tear gas. And there are many wounded in the various cities of Khartoum State. Besides Khartoum State, uh, reports uh, from other states say that thousands protested in Dongala and Karima in northern state, Atbara of the Nile River state, and Mandani of the Al-Azira state. In, Dar- in the Darfur area, demonstrators came out in Al-Fashir and Nayala, where 64 demonstrators were arrested. The pro-democracy protests also took place in Port Sudan of the Red Sea state, and Kosti of the White Nile. The November 13th protests were organized by the Sudanese Professional Association and the resistance committees in support of the civilian state in Sudan. The anti-coup demonstrators raised photos of the detained Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdak, who is seen as a symbol of the civilian-led government. U.S. Embassy in Khartoum, uh, voiced deep concern about the loss of life and injuries during Saturday's protest in Sudan. Uh, the U.S. government said, we continue to stand with those seeking restoration of the country's transition to democracy. Uh, they added this in a tweet that was posted on yesterday. Mustafa El-Hadi, Southern Khartoum coordinator of the resistance committees, told the pro-democracy internet TV Sudan and they coordinate well uh, with other committees. He added that they just determined the goals of the protest, leaving every area to choose the appropriate ways to enforce it. The local committees and the Sudanese Professional Association plan to organize other protests uh, in uh, three days. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, an Islamic State-linked extremist group blamed uh, for the killing of thousands in Nigeria and neighboring West African countries has killed four members of the Nigerian army, including a general. Now, that's according to the military. Uh, they issued this statement yesterday. The Islamic State in West Africa province killed uh, the security personnel during an attack in the Askira Uba area of Borno State, where a war against a rebel insurgency has been centered for more than a decade. The Nigerian army spokesperson said its troops killed several Islamic State members in response to the attack, uh, which residents told the Associated Press had also targeted a military base 
and unfolded over a period of three days. Hassan Shibak, a community leader in a neighboring Shibak council, said a classroom building and other structures were destroyed by the extremist insurgents. The primary school in Askira Uba was burned down. The primary health care center was also burned down. And the house of the village head, he said, in the fierce encounter, which is still raging at the time of filing this report, troops supported by the air component of the Operation Hadim Kai, the code name for the military operation in the Northeast, have destroyed five A-Jet, two A-29, two Dragon combat vehicles, and nine gun trucks. The Army spokesperson, Brigadier General Onyeme Inwachukwu, uh, said this in a statement. The development is yet another sign that the Islamic State-linked group remains a threat uh, in the northeastern part of Africa's most populous country, despite the Nigerians' military repeated claims of successes in the war against the insurgency, especially after the Islamic State lost two leaders in the last uh, few months. And finally, in the North African state of Libya, uh, Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, son of Libya's former leader Muammar Gaddafi, has registered as a presidential candidate for the country's December election. An official from the Electoral Commission has said, Salif al-Salam al-Gaddafi submitted his candidacy for the presidential election to the High National Electoral Commission office in the southern city of Sabah. A statement by the commission said on Sunday, Gaddafi is one of the most prominent figures expected to run for president. A list that also includes renegade Eastern Commander Khalifa Haftar, Prime Minister Abdul Hamid Babeba, and uh, Parliament Speaker Aguila Saleh. Photographs distributed on social media show Gaddafi with a great beard and wearing glasses and a traditional brown robe and, dirt and turban, signing documents at the registration center in the southern town of Sabah earlier today. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, concluding uh, this segment uh, of our program, uh, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an electronic uh, press service. Uh, It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people uh, throughout the continent uh, and the world. Uh, the press agency was founded uh, in January of 1998, and uh, since then, it has uh, published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites uh, throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only uh, daily Pan-African news source um, internationally. And, of course, if you want to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to uh, have access uh, to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, uh, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, all you have to do, uh, is go uh, to our site, and of course, uh, that is at uh, uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. Uh, 
That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And um, these uh, broadcasts uh, can be shared with other potential listeners by merely copying and pasting the links into emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. Uh, The uh, programs can also be shared uh, by copying and pasting the links on the blogs and websites. Uh, They can also be shared uh, uh, through social media networks such as uh, Facebook and Twitter. And um, you're listening listening to to, uh, the Pan-African Journal or the radio broadcast. And um, you can, of course, uh, log on uh, to uh, the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal uh, for Sunday, November 14th, uh, 2021. Uh, we are broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition of our program. And uh, as I said before, you can read the Pan-African Newswire uh, by merely logging on to uh, our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. And I am your host uh, here uh, every week, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And, of course, uh, we are here uh, bringing you some of the most updated and advanced uh, news and information, uh, of course, around uh, the international community. Yeah. Of course, we're going to take a musical break uh, right now, and uh, we'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, that was uh, the voice of Phyllis Hyman and Living Inside of You. And uh, here, uh, right now, we're going to move into our segment on the 1619 Project. This is an interview with, uh, with Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, the author of the 1619 Project. Uh, which uh, is going to be turned uh, into a book um, and released, re-released. Uh, this is an interview she did uh, at Howard University, where she now uh, teaches. Let's listen in. Hello, members of the Digital Library Federation. It's so good to be back with you for this year's forum. This time around, I'll be in conversation with Nicole Hannah-Jones. We are joining you today from the campus of Howard University, where we are both professors in the journalism program in the Kathy Hughes School of Communications, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Nicole Hannah-Jones, ladies and gentlemen, is a superstar and an award-winning investigative reporter who covers civil rights and racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine. In 2020, she was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for commentary for her groundbreaking 1619 project a much-needed corrective reevaluation of the master narrative of American history. This project powerfully demonstrates how slavery, violence, and systemic racial oppression have always been the fulcrum on which the story of this nation turns. And it also places black Americans as central actors in the creation and intergenerational preservation of democracy. The 1619 Project has generated a great deal of controversy and fierce backlash. A year and a half later, folks are still arguing about it and scapegoating the messenger rather than the issues unearthed. That's because we're living in a historical moment when nothing is racist to racist except black people writing about racism. For those of you who attended last year's forum, you may recall that I delivered the keynote address. Some things have changed over the past year, while others remain the same. We are still living in precarious times. The scourge of this deadly pandemic is still claiming precious lives every day. And there is still a restless reckoning around race in America. Last year, I posed a very important question to the DLF community. Do black lives matter in the glands, to galleries, to libraries, to archives, and to museums? I left the audience with a call to action. Commit to build a more diverse community of practitioners working in these spaces. Reconsider how decisions are made at the top about funding, hiring practices, and about whose stories and documents get preserved. Make visible the collections of marginalized communities, which too often remain hidden. Invest in archives and research centers at historically black colleges and universities with deteriorating infrastructures and collections which are in danger of being lost. Here we are, one year later, and the DLF community continues to grapple with many of these issues in a society still struggling with social justice issues. The clarion call for the glands is to support telling stories that are grounded in historical facts, to support and empower librarians, scholars, journalists, curators, digital storytellers, and archivists who are doing the digging, curating, preservation, and outreach work from a place of truth so that we will not continue to be a society that perpetuates lies into the future. 
And with that said, I'd like to welcome Nicole Hannah-Jones. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Good to be here with you. Great to be here with you. So, we have a hero in common, Ida B. Wells Barnett, black woman, investigative journalist, and she once said, to right wrongs, we must turn the light of truth upon them. So how does this principle shape the work that you do as an investigative journalist? Thanks for asking about yeah, our, our common shero. Um, Ida B. Wells Barnett was the first example I had of an investigative reporter who looked like me and who was doing uh, the type of urgent work that I wanted to do. And um, I think that m her mantra is really a mantra of our profession, which is we understand that our job is to hold the powerful accountable, uh, to expose uh, the way that they wield that power against the vulnerable in, in the hopes that an informed citizenry uh, will actually act and respond when injustice is exposed. So um, that's really been my guiding light through uh, my 20-year career as a journalist. And she was quite fearless as well. Absolutely. Gangsta in some respects. Absolutely. Uh, I always say she was the bossest uh, black woman, or really, um, journalist. She, she was uh, fearless in a way that when we use that word today, it has a very different meaning. You know, this is a, a black woman uh, born into slavery um, who uh, comes up during Reconstruction and is challenging authority when um, black people didn't have legal protections. Law enforcement was part of the lynch mob, uh, and she was going into communities that had literally just murdered black people, um, sometimes stealing them from the jail, and investigating and asking questions. Uh, she also was an innovator in our profession. She was one of the original data reporters, one of the first to start uh, tracking actually how many lynchings were happening and what were the excuses given for those lynchings versus the reality. Um, and, you know, she was a, a, a intersectional woman before that was a term. Mm -hmm. She was a suffragist. Uh, she was a feminist. She was a, a civil rights leader. She was a journalist. Uh, she was all of those things. Mm -hmm. And in a five-foot, 100-pound body. Yes. Tiny little something. So on any given day, I tell people, um, uh, I'm, I'm both a historian and a journalist. So some days I'll say, I'm a journalist who writes history, or I'm a historian who does journalism. So are you a journalist who writes history or do you consider yourself a journalist who writes the first draft of history? Um, both. Uh, I think that um, all of my journalism has always been informed by history. Uh, I'm a lay historian. I, um, I don't have degrees in, well actually I have an undergraduate degree in history and African American studies and I always do um, some original archival research in my own reporting. Uh, but I think I, I've, you know, we do both. We are both uh, cataloging what's happening in our society right now, understanding that uh, we will be the primary source material for future historians. And um, I'm also using historical research um, in my journalism to try to excavate the society that we live in now. Mm -hmm. The 1619 Project. Can you tell the DLF community what inspired this project? How did you come to it? Hmm. Um, I'm going to try to give the short answer of that, but uh, in some ways, 1619 was inspired by 
a high school black studies course that I took a uh, few years ago. Um, and I, I went to high school in the Midwest. My high school offered a one semester black studies elective taught by Mr. Ray Dial, who was uh, the first and only black male teacher I had in my K-12 education. And um, in that one class, I learned more about black people in America, in uh, Africa, uh, than I'd learned in my entire education up until that point. And, you know, it was three months, and I learned more than I'd ever learned. And I came, uh, really became obsessed with learning that history. And so I would ask Mr. Dow to give me books to read on my own. And one of the books he gave me was Before the Mayflower by Lerone Bennett. And I still have Classic. that copy. Uh, sadly, I never gave it back to Mr. Dow, but <laughs> I, I think he, he, he said he has replaced it. I talked to him recently. Um, and so about 30 pages in, I came across the date 1619. And it, it was like a lightning bolt moment where I realized I thought the title of the book before the Mayflower was talking about African history that predated the Mayflower. I didn't realize it was talking about an American history and really, uh, you know, saying we all learn about the Mayflower in 1620, but there was another ship that arrived a year earlier. Um, and that was so symbolic of both erasure of how our stories and our histories as black, of black people have been kind of erased from the common narrative. Um, but it was also um, a power of legacy, which is that it meant a lot to me as a black child to know that our ancestors had been here uh, since just 12 years after the English who got all the credit for it. Um, so I've been thinking about that power of that date and also that erased history for my entire adult life. Uh, fast forward 20 years, 30 years, um, and I'm not a high school student anymore, I'm at the New York Times, and I'm thinking a lot about this 400 year anniversary is approaching of this momentous date, um, but in a country that has willfully tried to suppress uh, the legacy of slavery that has not wanted to deal with it. And I decided I wanted to pitch a project to um, force one, that date into the lexicon. You know, black scholars uh, know that date, but the average American, um, when I, you know, in 2018, had never heard of the date 1619. And so um, I wanted to force the date into the lexicon, but I also wanted to use it as an opportunity uh, to force a reckoning with our history and to really say slavery is um, a foundational American institution. It's not an asterisk, it's not marginal, it's at the center. Uh, and that's um, how I came up with the project. And the 1619 project is a collaboration. Yes. You have uh, uh, photographers, uh, literary folks, some heavy-hitting historians who I, you know, know as someone who holds a PhD in African American history, uh, museum curators, all that. So, could you talk a little bit about that kind of uh, collaboration? And do you see this? Uh, kind of cross-disciplinary collaboration as a new way to do public history and to present history to um, uh, folks from an educational perspective? Yeah, it, I, I knew when I um, decided I was going to pitch something to the New York Times to commemorate 1619 that it had to be big. Um, it couldn't just be me writing an essay. It had to be substantial because how else do you grapple with a 400-year history? Um, we don't have opportunity in this country or really many places to commemorate 400 years of anything. And um, so 
I knew from the beginning it had to include lots of writers. Um, I knew from the beginning it had to include historians, both um, brainstorming, consulting, and writing. Um, and then it, it, in some ways, the project in and of itself had to serve as a testament uh, to our ancestors and to the 31 million descendants. So as many black voices as we could get across disciplines, um, then the project in and of itself becomes a, a capsule of something, uh, of showing um, that some of the greatest writers in America, historians in America, are black. Not, not the greatest black writers or greatest black historians or black photographers, but we are fully American and have uh, been some of the greatest contributors to culture, writing, um, research. Um, so that was really important, in, and it was also the only way you could show the breadth of the argument. Um, I wanted to um, take this story that had been from the margins and show, look at across all these American institutions, um, and the shadow of slavery can be seen there, even if we've wanted to pretend that it wasn't. Uh, so it just kept kind of getting bigger and bigger. Um, because it was carrying 400 years of history. And even as big as the original project was, uh, now, of course, you know, we're turning it into uh, books, and, and the adult book comes out November curriculum. 16th. Curriculum. Um, podcast. Podcast. Um, I mean, it, it's TV and film, um, because people really embraced wanting to learn this history, and we could never tell it entirely. We could keep expanding this for the rest of my life, um, and we could never tell the story entirely. But it was important to, uh, to give us a sense, a peek of, um, of all that could be known, but that we're not taught. And I have to tell you, just between you and me, <laughs> um, some of my historian friends, those who've been entrenched in the academy mm -hmm. for 20, 30 years, particularly mm -hmm. in the history profession, uh, have looked at the response to the 1619 Project, and some of them will say, she's a journalist. Yes. Now, I got some of that shade when I was in my PhD program at Rutgers. Um, you know, some of my faculty uh, mentors would say, you don't write like a historian, you write like a journalist, as if that was a bad thing. And I would have to remind them that some of the best histories have been written by, you know, uh, journalists, slavery by another name, Doug Blackman. Um, the warmth of other suns, Isabel, you know, uh, uh, journalist. And so I, I wonder if this kind of collaboration or the fact that you, you know, written in a journalistic voice but with an eye to the, you know, accuracy of the archives right. provides some lessons, particularly for humanity scholars who for so long have been trained to write for these, you know, echo chambers or disciplinary silos. What can they learn from this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've certainly heard some of that criticism, though um, that has not been the typical response from historians, uh, particularly black historians, but historians in general. And, you know, my response to that is very simple. The 1619 Project is a work of journalism. It's not a historical text. Um, these are essays that are using history to make an argument. There's reporting. Um, every essay... Um, leads up to the modern day. Uh, all of those essays are, are linked to what, what and who we are in America today, and it's using history to inform that argument. And um, I think we, we shouldn't gatekeep like that, particularly in a time where um, 
history departments are struggling to attract majors, right, where we're, we're seeing kind of attacks on the liberal arts, like is, is this a practical skill to have? Well, if only historians should be writing histories or using history, then what is the purpose of the field? Um, I asked this of, of, of one of the critics of the, of the project who was saying, suggesting that journalists shouldn't do journalism because that's what the 1619 Project is. And I said, why, why create histories if you don't want regular people, non-historians, to read your work and use it in their own, to inform their own? Um, so I, I, I don't think that that has been the typical response. And in fact, I've heard from uh, a lot of historians and also K-12 social studies teachers that the project has helped uh, permeate that kind of um, membrane between the academy and regular people's understanding of this history and that it's made students see how relevant history and the study of history is to understanding their world that we live in today. Um, and of course, historians were always a part of the project. Um, in the original project, several of the essays were written by academic historians, Kevin Cruz, Khalil Muhammad. In the book, almost all of the new essays are written by historians, everyone from you know, Martha Jones, Carol Anderson, Ibram Kendi. Um, so the fact, I think, that so many historians, um, especially those who already are doing a great job of writing for popular audience in places like the New York Times or the Washington Post, they understand that uh, writing in that way just opens up your research and that understanding to a much bigger audience. And I don't see how that can be a negative. I think the DLF uh, community would like to know more specifically about how the 1619 Project uh, collaborated with the um, museum, the African American Museum in yes. D.C. Could you talk a little bit more about that, uh, ro the role that they played in all this? Absolutely. Um, so what we understood is that the magazine part of the project, so the project is a magazine and a special section of the newspaper. That because the magazine was not a traditional history, we weren't doing the history of slavery uh, in the magazine. What we were doing was was saying we are going to write essays about the legacy of slavery. Um, that there was so much history that people didn't have in, to begin with. Like we're taught about slavery so poorly that just basic facts of, of this history are not known. Um, so we began to thinking pretty early on about collaborating with the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Um, one of the first things we did when I got the green light to do the project was a group of us went down to the museum. I have uh, been going to the museum since it, since it opened five years ago, but none of um, the other people on the staff who came down had been to the museum. So I wanted them to get an understanding of uh, the stakes and the heaviness of this history. and. As you know, if you go into uh, the Slavery and Freedom uh, exhibit at the museum, it's just powerful, Heavy. powerful. Um, and for most Americans, because we don't learn this history very well, it just blows their mind. Like, they just had no idea. Um, so when we came back, we started thinking, well, what if we could uh, create a kind of um, broadsheet that mimicked a museum exhibit that would take items from the museum and use that to to teach a, a brief history of the institution of slavery. And I worked, uh, we, we worked very closely with Mary Elliott, 
who is also a, a Howard alum um, and is finishing up her PhD in history at Howard and she was the curator of that museum to select the items in the museum and work in close partnership with such an important um, institution in American life and uh, it was amazing. It was an amazing partnership. Um, people learned so much and it was digestible because we did tell it around images. So it, it really did function very similar to um, a museum exhibition in that you would have the photo of the object and then just a brief um, I'm sorry, uh, one sentence. Right, accounting of, of what, that, what that image was. Um, so it also, I think, helped lead more people, not that the museum needed um, us to help advertise it. I mean, as you know, it's it, it sold out for years. Um, but uh, I think it modeled a type of collaboration that we should see more of, um, which is respecting the storytelling of these institutions and understanding that, again, we we have a different way of telling that story and getting it out uh, to the public because as many visitors as that museum has had, we still know most Americans um, will probably never get to D.C. to see it in person. Mm -hmm. So the 1619 project wasn't just a print project where people line, literally lined the streets waiting for hard copies of this thing. It was multimedia. Yes. Um, and I'm curious to know uh, what role you played in shaping the online uh, presence of this project. Yeah, so the, um, not a lot. Um, I, I will be very honest by the time, so from the time I pitched the project to publication was about six and a half months, um, and I was completely overwhelmed just trying to get the print part of the project out. And then, of course, the podcast where um, I was basically the host of, of the podcast that was coming out at the same time. Um, so we relied really heavily on uh, our digital team to kind of come up with the look and the feel. Um, they presented lots of different ways to tell the stories, and, and, and we did a lot of weighing in on that. Um, I think the biggest thing was creating a design that would allow you to sit with it, because as you know, you know, in this, in this digital world, there's so many distractions, and this is long. The 1619 Project is long. It's a lot of text, a lot of images, um, and how do you get people who are not reading it in print to actually stay with it and, and go through all the different pieces of it. And so they gave a lot of thought to that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, you've gotten a lot of praise mm -hmm. and you've gotten a lot of scorn. Yeah. Uh, what's behind both of these reactions? I think what's behind both of them is actually the same thing. It's just uh, people respond to it very differently, which is this is a history they did not know. Mm -hmm. This was an understanding that they did not have. Um, and so the praise came from, uh, n no one ever taught me this, and it makes me see America in a different way that I didn't understand, and I, I didn't know how uh, slavery shaped our politics in, as, or in our our system of capitalism, um, you know, all of these areas, people just felt this had been a, a history that had been hidden from them and that it, they couldn't help but see their country differently with this uh, framing and these set of facts. Um, and that's also what made people oppose the project, which is um, this unsettling of the, the master narrative, or as I could say, the master's narrative, uh, this putting black people in the center of the American story as the most ardent 
freedom fighters and perfectors of democracy that, that this country has ever Which seen. Which was so offensive to a lot of people. It's offensive, exactly, right? So when you look at these kind of counterattacks, the 1776, I mean, I don't even know how many 1776 projects there are now, right? There was the commission. Hillsdale College has their own thing. There's a, a conservative-funded black 1776 counterproject um, that's seeking to vindicate the narrative of our founding um, but not seeking to tell the truth of our founding. And I think that's where we have to understand um, that what this really is. You know, I've been a journalist for 20 years. I've written about racial inequality my entire career. So what is it about the 1619 Project that's led to this backlash? And that is because it, it is actually about our national identity and how we collectively think about who we are as a country. And that is very scary to people who are used to one narrative that glorifies uh, one group of people and glorifies our country as exceptional. And a um, slow march to liberty. Yes. Rather than inevitable progress. And brutal that's right. path. Right. Well that's treated as that's treated as the exception, mm -hmm. right? We are a great country and yeah, we did some little things like chattel slavery, <laughs> genocide. People. But that's not oh, who time. we are mm -hmm. as a country. Well, that is who we are as a country. Now I would argue um, that the ideals not of the Constitution originally, but of the Declaration, were majestic ideals. Those are some of the greatest words uh, written uh, in the English language. Um, but we didn't live up to them, and we just have to be honest about that. So the response on both sides, had the project not been so successful, had it not started being uh, going into schools, had it not been embraced, you wouldn't see this backlash to the project. The backlash is coming in response I think to how effective the project has been, um, along with other work that, that were out, and along, of course, with the racial reckoning last year. Mm -hmm. It's all getting wrapped up uh, in this thing. And demographic shifts. Right. There's already these anxieties. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what, what we saw last year with the racial reckoning, which, of course, is already done, seems like mm -hmm. we've, we've already moved on, um, was people evoking this language of 400 years, of 1619 where, and I've looked a lot at the polling, um, you saw majorities of Americans, majorities of white Americans, and almost half of Republicans who were saying that uh, racial inequality and structural inequality was a primary cause of, uh, of black struggle. Versus before, it was really about individuals. Mm -hmm. Yes, there's some individual races, and individual black people need to just take advantage of their opportunities. So when you started to see um, this connecting of this past, of this legacy, of this 400-year struggle and critiques of structure, that's when you see the backlash. That's when we get this whole critical race theory backlash, uh, this made-up controversy, because it was um, understanding that kind of the, the genetic wedge of America is race. And all you have to do is start telling white Americans, look, not only are they trying to demographically displace you, but now they want to displace your history and your heroes and tell you that your people were not the greatest people, your people were bad people, which, of course, is not what any of this work is doing. Um, and that's how you can drive that resentment and change the focus. And it's been very effective. If you were a white male named Nathan Jones, do you think, you know, as a journalist, you're a white male journalist, Nathan Jones, that this backlash would have been as fierce. Does, does being uh, the messenger in your body 
make a difference in terms yes, of Yes, of course. So two things. Um, I don't think white male Nathan Jones creates the 1619 Project, let's be frank. Um, this is where I talk about how we treat diversity as uh, some nice thing that we should do, like some the right uh, thing to do, but not that it actually is improving our journalism. Not that it's actually like having me in the room or you in the room brings just a different focus and different stories and different reporting. So uh, 1619 Project doesn't exist um, without someone like me in the room. Mm -hmm. And then certainly uh, someone like me being the one at the New York Times, uh, not at you know a black institution, not at a um, lesser known white institution, but at kind of the citadel of, of, of elite American journalism telling this story clearly leads to the backlash. They don't like um, how I talk, how I present. They really hate my hair, right? Like I, I, because it's a rejection of the uniform, right? It's a rejection of um, what they have told us we have to do to be successful. And someone like me should not be able to command a project like this at a place like the New York Times and then have the nerve to not just go quietly about it. So all of that um, is wrapped up in the response, for sure. How dare you, a black woman, invert the gaze onto yes. this master narrative. You know, over the years. And have the nerve to be successful at it. Exactly. If this project had failed at the New York Times. And doing it in your No one would care. Right. <laughs> right. Because it's the thing about the project, I mean, this is why. And, and it's not that the project is above critique. Of course it is. Um, you don't produce something this ambitious and this big and not expect critique. There's plenty of things that can be done differently, should have been done differently. Um, and that's not the, the problem. Um, but it is that we were determined to be unflinching in how we were telling these stories. We weren't going to worry about uh, how do people feel about the, about the stories being told this way. And we were, you know, uh, mainstream journalism centers white people in the white story without saying that's what it's doing. And they call that objective. But we were explicitly saying we are telling the story of black people in this country. We are centering black people in the narrative of the American story. Um, and we're going to be explicit about that. And um, people had a strong response to that, either positively or negatively. It was about whose voice white America wants yes. to hear. Yes, one, one historian critic, um, a Princeton historian. Um, Sean Malin. Not him, actually. Not him? Okay. Though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sean, Sean Wilentz, uh has found an unending a desire to to keep trying to um, not critique the project but discredit it. Mm -hmm. He's not been successful. But another one um, wrote, you know, slavery was just but a blip in the history of America, and in what other place could uh, the formerly enslaved write something like this from, uh, you know, again, the citadel of American power with the consent of their former enslavers. He wrote this. So what that tells you is that's what it's really about, is who should have the control of writing these stories at these elite institutions, and that it shouldn't be me, except it was. There have been times when I've written commentary for the Times, Washington Post, other places, and I consistently 
And no matter how surgically precise you are with the facts, right? No matter how deft you are in terms of using the archival material right. to support your point, inevitably you get people who say, "You hate white people. <laughs> you you hate America. You're causing all the division." Do you did you get that kind of response? Of course, of course, right? Um, I mean, there's laws against teaching my project. Two of the most powerful senators, um, Senator Tom Cotton and Mitch McConnell, um, sponsored legislation to prohibit the project from being taught in American schools. Um, so yes, and, and when you read the bills, what the bills say, and you know, I, I'm a good journalist, but I, I'm not that powerful. I can't single-handedly destroy America with the work <laughs> of journalism, right? But that's what it's saying, that, this, that if we tell these stories, uh, this is destructive to America. Now, one, that's not my concern as a journalist. My concern as a journalist is to try to render the truth as closely as I can. Uh, but two, no one who reads my opening essay in the project can come away with anything except a sense of actually patriotism, of saying, my dad flew his flag and I didn't get it, but he actually had every right to fly the flag of the country that his ancestors built. And the critique from the left has been it's too patriotic, right? So that people would say that this is a project about hating white people, I don't know where that comes from, um, or trying to destroy America, I don't know where that comes from. But what I will say is if you think telling an accurate truth about our country might lead children to think our country is racist, then maybe you need to reckon with the fact that our country is racist. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with that, right? Because what they're basically saying is we, if we taught these truths about what our country actually is, it will give children the perception that we were founded as a racist country. So, okay. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, next. <laughs> so going into the archives and unearthing some ugly stuff, particularly when you're writing about the history of a community that you belong to. Yes. It can be lonely. It, I, I have shed tears in the archives. I've had to get up from the table, yes. walk away, quit for that day. Um, how has it been for you emotionally to do this work? You know, it's, it's taxing, you know that. Um, to just spend month after month after month uh, reading about and thinking about and writing about the horrors, mm -hmm. um, the terrorism, the barbarism, the torture um, that that your your people had to face, and also still seeing every day uh, black people not being treated as full humans, black people being abused right now. Um, so it's not even something that you can put away as, man, that was messed up a long time ago. Like you're still seeing it happening right now. It's really hard. And and I, I've said before, you know, I, I drink, drink more bourbon than I should probably, right? But at the same time, the beauty of this work and going into the archives is you're also daily inspired by what you find, right? That you can go in there and like in 1830, Black people were writing this. Black people were having these color conventions, and they were laying the groundwork for the 14th, 15th Amendment, right? Like, 
when you see that, that to me is what lets you keep going because part of, again, um, why people have been so angry with the project is we are taught a history that black people are not actors. We are just acted upon. We let people come steal us. We let people enslave us. Then we waited for them to free us. And when you go in the archives and you start seeing, um, you see that we are the agents, that we were always resisting, we were always responding, uh, we were not even uh, part of the body politic, but refusing to be left outside of it. Um, and that is beautifully fortifying. And it's knowing that, um, that makes me never feel burdened by the work but like blessed every single day that I get to do this for a living and I get to excavate our stories um, for a wider audience, but more importantly for our own communities. So I gotta ask you, cause you're like super famous for doing this work. Am I? Yeah, you are, yeah. you are. Um, do you ever get paranoid uh, when you go into a research center, archive, because honestly, I do sometimes, and I don't have the same profile that you do, mm -hmm. but everybody knows that I write about racism. Yes. So if I'm coming and I'm looking for something, you know, it's, I'm going to dig up some ugly. And so I just imagine these people saying, like, oh, Nicole Hannah-Jones is here. Lock down the vertical <laughs> files. Tell her that those files have not been processed for digitation. Tell her we have nothing. I'm at a point where I might just, you know, get me a, a really old school Anglo-Saxon archival pseudonym, like Lewis <laughs> Puss Wolstonecraft, something like that, to go into the archives. Um, because I have heard stories mm. where um, things, particularly if you, if you have a, a profile like yours and you're black and you're coming in to write about race, things can't be found. Mm. Uh, so I wonder if you ever think about that, if you ever have that sense of, people might hide stuff from me because they know what I'm going to do with it. You know, now, now I'm feeling all uh, naive that I haven't been paranoid. <laughs> no, I, so, you know, as an investigative reporter, yes, I always have the sense that people want to hide things from me, um, and many of them do, but not archives. Uh -huh. I, I, haven't, I haven't had that experience. Now, it could be uh, stuff was being hidden and I didn't know it, but what I found is uh, archivists, actually really do care about uh, the story getting out there and that um, they've always been extremely helpful where I'll call looking for one thing and they're like, oh, but you didn't even, they're like, okay, yes, I'll get you that, but you should look at this. Here's this box. Exactly. <laughs> um, or did you even know that this was in there? This might be something that's interesting for your research. I have found them to be so helpful because one, not a ton of journalists do what we do, which is go to archives. It's not that common. Um, and they understand that when we're going in the archives, we're giving broader audience to the work they do and the collections. And they, they don't, you don't get into archival work to preserve things that no one's ever gonna look at. Mm -hmm. You get it to preserve because you hope that it will be of use to our society. So. That has not been my experience, but you know, who knows, maybe I should be more paranoid. Critical race theory. Oh, Lord. <laughs> There's a lot of misunderstanding about what it yeah. actually is. If you had to give a quick definition for the DLF community uh, to clarify, 
what would it be? So there's uh, critical race theory, the fake uh, conservative propaganda campaign. Um, and then there's critical race theory that is the graduate level uh, theoretical framework that is not even radical because all it's saying is um, we passed all of these civil rights laws. Black people have um, the same legal rights as all American citizens, and yet we still see inequality all across American life. Why is that? It's because uh, racism and hierarchy is embedded in the structures of our country. And it really started by looking specifically at the legal system. Racism, hierarchy is embedded in the legal systems of our country, which is so unradical that I don't even understand what's the controversy. Because Obviously it is. I mean, I have a book at home that I use for research, and it's just called Race in the Law. It's like two Bibles thick, and it's not a narrative. It's literally just listing race in the law, going back to the 1600s. Um, so actual critical race theory is just a framework uh, to try to understand how 60 years after the Civil Rights Movement, we still have black people still are on the bottom of every indicator of well-being. That's not controversial to me. Um, is it arguing that racism is embedded into our institutions? Yes. That's not controversial to me. Now, critical race theory, the fake controversy and propaganda campaign, uh, it's just a, a savvy tool to stoke white resentment um, and to really um, use that to uh, create a wedge between um, a multiracial political party, which is uh, the Democrat Party, uh, to divide off white voters from that party um, and uh, to also use it um, in order to lay the groundwork to pass really bad regressive policy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the fact that we're all talking about it when we know that K-12 teachers were not teaching critical race theory, probably didn't even know what critical race theory was, most of them. Um, and what they're really saying is don't teach about race don't teach black stories like Ruby Bridges because it makes white children feel bad. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. The fact that we're all talking about it, though, speaks to the success of the, of the propaganda campaign. Mm -hmm. DEI, diversity, equity, mm -hmm. and inclusion. There's been a lot of that work uh, over the past year. Do you see this as genuine? Is it window dressing? Is it performative? Is it short-lived? <laughs> I could tell by how you frame that question that that was a rhetorical question yeah I, I I don't I I one I I don't think that uh, DEI is ever been effective I think most um, organizations it's performative um, they tend to put someone in that position who has no power to actually do anything and then when you know, the institution doesn't get transformed and they were like, well, it's ineffective, so we're, we're not, we're going to get rid of that personal initiative. Um, I don't even like the word diversity because what I'm, what I'm talking about in my work is redress, justice, not just saying all marginalized people are the same, lumping everyone together and saying, let's talk about how we're all, you know, a beautiful kaleidoscope. No, I want to talk about um, why are black people at the bottom of every indicator of well-being and what about your institution is leading to that and then how do you make it right? Um, so I think what's happened is 
a lot of very poorly done DEI trainings led by people who probably shouldn't be training people um, and, and to what end, I don't know. And then that has a, then been used, of course, against people who are doing actual work for justice. Mm -hmm. And um, it's part of the, the scapegoating of critical race theory is coming from all of these uh, trainings, so-called DEI in these positions, that aren't effective. We can just look at a year out from, a year and some months out from all the Black Lives Matter protests. And every company, right, was coming up with this, you know, support of black lives and investing in diversity and inclusion training. And a year later, what's the result? Do more people get hired? Do more people have power? Uh, are you even talking about it anymore? Or did you spend some money bringing someone who made you feel bad for an hour and now you've done your self-flagellation and you can move on without actually fundamentally changing anything. So no, I'm, I'm highly suspicious of almost all of these trainings. Um, and I just think it's an easy way not to have to do the real work. Mm -hmm. You and I are sitting on hallowed ground here at yes. Howard University, the Mecca, yes. uh, with a long and rich history of producing change makers, producing journalists and, and others. And there's also a very rich trove of archival material on this campus. So, and you've bought millions of dollars to, to Howard. Uh, how do you plan to engage students uh, in the archives? Spen Garn is not far from where we sit. What are your plans to do uh, with journalism students and this material as you move forward here? Yes, thank you for asking that. I know that. Um, this is such uh, important work for you as well, and this is clearly the right audience to have these conversations because, uh, as you know, um, Howard is sitting on really the largest uh, repository of black life in the world. And unfortunately, though, because black institutions have always been under-resourced, um, it has not been able to be digitized in the way that it needs to be, which means it, the public can't access this amazing trove of, of global black life. Um, so I specifically, when I came here, asked to have my office in the undergraduate library, which is where, you know, those archives are moving, because I'm like, I, I want to be working in those archives. I want to teach uh, budding journalists how to do original archival research. Uh, the black press archives there um, were, I'm going to be teaching classes where we're going to go in there and read those, right? We're going to read, uh, you know, the center I'm building is called the Center for Journalism and Democracy, and uh, the democratizing press was the black press. The, it was the black press that was calling out, of course, all the ways that this so-called democracy was failing. And um, I want students to be able to go in there and do original research and go through those archives, smell it and feel it. Um, there's just certain things, you know, you can read a, a book where someone else has done archival research, but that's through their prism, and they've decided what they feel is important for you to know. But some of my greatest finds in my research are things that have never appeared in anybody's book. Um, you know, I did a, I was researching at the, um, the archives at the University of Michigan for this school desegregation case, uh, Milliken v. Bradley, and I was reading the judge's uh, archives over that case. And he was writing um, 
notes in the margins of the research that was being submitted. And you could see his thinking in a way that never came out in his ruling just because I'm reading his handwritten notes in the archives. Like, that's a beautiful uh, piece of discovery that I don't think enough journalists or, or students um, at all um, get to have. Um, I mean, that's why we love journalism, right? It's that digging, that, that odyssey of discovery. So I'm so excited uh, to take students into the archives, to have the archivists, show them what's in there, uh, to learn how to do this research. Um, but we need funding, and uh, I'm fundraising for the archives to, to help with digitization. Um, my understanding is that at its peak, that archive, um, the Moreland Spingarn had 50 employees, and now it has about five. Um, this is not, uh, these archives are not a treasure for Howard. They are a treasure for the world, and this is not black history. This is American and global history, and um, we as a society can do better and we need to support these efforts, not just at Howard, but at historically black colleges across the country that were um, archiving black life when white institutions were not interested. They weren't collecting our stories. They weren't collecting our archives. But black people always understood the value and the necessity of doing this. And so all across the country, um, these black archives are housed in institutions that understood the importance of archiving black life, uh, but they need help, and that to me is a societal obligation. One last closing thought for our audience. There's going to be a lot of conversation at this year's annual forum about self-care, mm -hmm. about building community. So how are you, and how have you been taking care of yourself, avoiding burnout and building community, doing this work and also being a kind of altar for these national debates and fierce backlash. Thank you for asking that. Um, I say all the time, I, I always get asked that question by other black women <laughs> because uh, clearly black women understand uh, the weight of this work and even though work that is not a burden, um, it still is a weight. And, um, you know, I, I, sometimes I'm do, I do better self-care than others, but uh, I used to say my self-care that I just keep working, but that's not actually self-care. Um, except I, I do feel like so fulfilled by the work that I do. So I've been trying um, to take more time to not be working on things, to relax, um, now that we can actually see people sometimes in COVID, because uh, I'm a very social person, and, and it really would be being around my friends and, you know, my, my found family that would nourish me. And, and so uh, spending the last year and a half with all these attacks in isolation, really taxing. It was not good. But I'm in, like, a great place right now. Um, I'm so proud of the 1619 book that, that we've put together. Um, and that's coming out. In soon. November. Yeah, November 16th. And, you know, uh, coming to Howard, which is like my lifelong dream. I know it was a, a dream of yours as well to be here. Um, and just starting institutions that uh, I hope will leave a legacy uh, for, uh, you know, of, for black people who want to be in this struggle. Um, I just feel so fulfilled and grateful, honestly. And then, you know, we'll have some bourbon with some friends tonight. <laughs> Sounds 
good. I actually lied. I have one more question. Okay. We started this conversation with our ancestors' words, to right, wrong, turn the light of truth on them. For the DLF community, these folks who are in galleries, libraries, archives, and museums, what can they do in their day-to-day -day work in terms of supporting projects like yours, um, you know, research centers across this country, what can they do to live up to that mandate that our ancestor mm. gave to us? That's a great question because um, we actually are in a very dangerous period in this country. I, I worry about, you know, these um, memory laws, which are what these anti-critical race theory laws are, um, they're, they're setting the groundwork for really regressive policy. You, you change and control the narrative, and that is what uh, allows and justifies policy. So it's not accidental that the same states that are passing those laws are passing laws against um, uh, voting rights, that they're passing laws against women's reproductive rights. Um, and truth is going to become so, it's always important, but being able to discern what is a fact, what, what is the true history? Um, the role of archives and of libraries is just so critical because you have the, the document, the original document. You have access to uh, truth in a way that, you know, an online publication that can say whatever it wants does not. Um, but I think folks have to get organized because the opposition is extremely organized. And the rest of us, don't seem to be, and I, I worry about what that means for our society. Um, I, I've one of the, a, a great article that came out recently by historian Tim Snyder in the New York Times Magazine, which he called these anti-critical race theory laws memory laws, and it was like one of those things where you read something and you're like, oh my God, that's it. That's right. I hadn't thought about it that way. And what he says is, we all have to pick an institution and defend it because we are veering towards authoritarianism, and we have to pick an institution and defend it. So my parting words to everyone here is pick your institution and defend it. Um, and if you think, you know, archives or libraries or publicly supported institutions uh, will not be under attack, um, they will be. And uh, they'll cut your budgets. Uh, they'll try to proscribe what type of work you can do, uh, set your priorities. So. Uh, we need to not be asleep about what's happening here. All of us need to uh, defend an institution. Defend an institution. Nicole Hannah-Jones, you're wonderful. Thank you so Thank much you. Uh, for joining us. And we'll all keep our eyes open to see what you have for us next. Thank you. Always good to be in conversation. With Absolutely. You. Welcome back, and uh, that was an extensive interview uh, with uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the uh, author of the 1619 Project, uh, which now is going to be uh, republished in book form. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment uh, for uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday. On uh, November the 14th, uh, 2021, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll be back 
forget you Woman, I'll try so hard to forget you Girl, you know you won't be true I'm looking for somebody new Woman, you've been trying to wreck my life oh, Woman, you've been trying to wreck my life You know I've been good to you
and uh, deals uh, with some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Hello and welcome to China Global Television Network. This is The World Today and I'm Mahe Mutua in Nairobi. Here are your top stories. UN climate talks wrap up with a compromise deal that stops short of phasing out coal. Al Jazeera's bureau chief arrested in Sudan as protests grow over a military takeover. And families await news after dozens are killed in clashes at a prison in Ecuador. We begin the top of the hour with the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. Almost two weeks of negotiations have ended after delegates agreed on stepping up efforts in the fight against climate change. Expectations were high. A deal could be the next step in averting catastrophe. And the reaction is mixed. CGTN's Timothy Ulrich reports. I declare the third session of the Conference of the Parties serving as the meeting of the parties closed. Grueling long hours of debate concluded Saturday in Scotland. Almost 200 delegates from around the world took part in discussions that sometimes went well into the night. The biggest concern, avoiding going over the tipping point. This is real progress in keeping 1.5 degrees within reach. Progress that we have made together. But the need for continual action and implementation to match ambition must continue throughout this decade. A last-minute move from India extended the debate into the evening. Their delegate raised issue with the agreement saying phase out coal. Instead, he said it should read phase down. That made it into the final text, but it was protested by some. This commitment on coal had been a bright spot in this package. It was one of the things we were hoping to carry out of here and back home with pride. And it hurts deeply to see that bright spot dim. We accept this change with the greatest reluctance. The mention of coal and another on fossil fuels were a success in their own right. The two had never been put on a COP agreement before. What's known as Article 6 of the Paris Agreement was put into motion. It will set rules for an international carbon trading system. The deal also called on wealthy nations to follow through on a past pledge. They had missed their deadline last year to provide $100 billion in funding for mitigation in the developing world. It also calls on the Global North to at least double support for adaptation measures in poorer countries. Many nations had been hoping to see more assistance to be pledged. Developed countries need to help developing countries strengthen their capabilities to address climate change so that countries can work together to address the climate crisis. COP26 has been a failure! We need to phase out and not phase down Critics say the summit was a letdown. An agreement on losses and damages due to climate change for developing nations was left out of the final deal. And that decision could prove to be fatal. It's a death sentence for the poorest people on the planet. And not only that, the polluters are saying, we don't care, we're not going to give you a penny. 
Countries strengthened pledges to cut emissions, but there's still an uphill battle. Energy Transitions Commission's reveals how much. It shows the current pledges will cut carbon emissions by 9 gigatons, or 9 billion metric tons. The report says another 13 gigatons of carbon emissions need to be cut. Otherwise, we will fail by the end of the decade to meet the Paris Agreement goal to keep it under 1.5 degrees by the end of the century. Delegates departing the COP26 summit will have their work cut out for them. Another takes place next year in Egypt. Timothy Ulrich, CGTN. Australia says it's committed to achieving and even beating its original targets for carbon emissions reduction. In a joint statement issued a day after the conclusion of the COP26 summit, the country's foreign and energy ministers said it will do what's right for rural and regional communities. Australia has committed to reduce emissions by up to 28% by 2030 and achieve net zero emissions by 2050. COP26 has asked nations to update these targets. Australia has been under pressure to do more as one of the world's top producers of coal and gas. It has said it will continue to export coal, whose emissions are worsening global warming. Well, still on climate change and the situation is not looking good. Schools will be shut in the Indian capital New Delhi for a week as the city's pollution control body warned of severe levels of air pollution. On Saturday, levels of PM2.5 particles topped 400 on the air quality index. That is 20 times the maximum daily limit recommended by the World Health Organization. The Delhi chief minister said starting Sunday, no construction activity would be allowed for four days. Government officers were asked to operate from home and residents were also advised to limit outdoor activities and minimize their exposure. According to the Central Pollution Control Board, poor air quality would likely run until at least Thursday. Ravinda Bauer has more now from Delhi. Because of climate change, what we are seeing in Delhi, we've been facing pollution because of very many reasons here. Even though the government has taken emergency steps like closing schools, stopping construction activities for the next four days, also you know, allowing all the government officials to work from home and not come to offices. Because the recent report which was published, uh, a study which was done for a month from October till 9th of November, found out that the main sources, the local sources of pollution in Delhi are vehicular pollution which contributes the most. And that's why this step of asking the government officials to work from home, the private organizations have been advised to follow suit, but we'll have to see how much they do. But definitely vehicular pollution, construction activity, industrial activity, these are the main contributors in Delhi's uh, pollution. Even though today the situation seems better than what it was uh, yesterday, uh, it's a top-notch less. We are in a very poor category now instead of severe, but even though certain parts of Delhi are beyond severe category, they are in hazardous category. So this is the situation and now the government is preparing a report because the Supreme Court, while listening to a petition on Saturday, uh, asked the Delhi government why there should not be a lockdown. So is lockdown a solution to deal with the present uh, you know, weather conditions as well as the pollution levels? Is some questions which experts are asking, they are saying it's not fair on many others whose livelihoods depend on daily wage. Media network Al Jazeera has reported Sudanese security forces arrested its Khartoum bureau chief, El Musalmi El Kabashi. Protests continue across the country. 
Witnesses and medics say five protesters were killed on Saturday as tens of thousands of people demonstrated against the military in the capital Khartoum and other cities. Naba Mohideen has more. The rally comes days after the military appointed a new sovereign council. The streets of the Sudanese capital has recently seen nationwide marches after the military's grab of power that saw the Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok ousted from the cabinet. On Saturday, forces erupted again against the military's recent decision. We rallied today against the military rule. We have tried it before and can't accept it. As elderly people, we joined the youth today to protest against the enforcement of power by whoever. Those youngsters' dreams are about freedom, peace and justice. They won't compromise it after they gained it when al-Bashir was ousted. Those people are defiant and leaders should listen to them. Many Western countries have warned against the generals taking unilateral decisions and urged Sudanese leaders to hold talks. Military say the new council is necessary to fill the political gap in the country after pro-military protesters urged the generals to seize the power last month. Abdullah Hamdok, who is under house arrest, refused to be part of the military arrangements and conditioned his reinstatement with the release of the political detainees. Pro-democracy groups are calling for wider protests and strikes if the military does not step back from their power grab. Naba Muhyiddin, CGTN, Khartoum. Sixty-eight prisoners have been killed and dozens wounded in overnight violence at a prison in Ecuador. The clashes ran from Friday night into early Saturday in the southern city of Guayaquil. The police described the riot as a power struggle between drug trafficking gangs. An earlier outburst of violence at the same prison in September left more than 100 inmates dead. Families of the prisoners are waiting anxiously for word of their loved ones. I'm hoping that my son is one of the injured, but we don't know anything because there is no official list from the authorities, only a list that has been leaked, but we don't know anything. Nothing is known. What the prisoners are saying from inside is that no police or military are in control and they are letting them kill each other in cold blood. The New York Times reports that the U.S. military covered up an airstrike in Syria that killed dozens of women and children. The revelations published Saturday detailed a 2019 drone strike in a dirt field next to a town called Baguz. The fight against the Islamic State was nearing its end. The report said that the 500-pound bomb and the 2,000-pound bomb dropped on the crowd was called in by a shadowy unit called Task Force 9. It added that military officials were aware that following the attack, they had killed up to 64 women and children. The Pentagon confirmed the story to the New York Times and justified it as, quote, legitimate self-defense. Finally, in Belarus, the government is distributing tents and relief supplies to refugees gathering near its border with Poland. Thousands of migrants have been waiting to cross into the European Union in freezing and dire conditions. Poland is accusing Belarus of destroying a temporary border barrier and using laser beams to blind Polish security services. Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko ordered tents to be set up on Saturday. This comes after the body of a young Syrian man was found near the border, bringing the number of migrant deaths to 11. There's been a military buildup on both sides of the border. This includes drills by Russian and Belarusian paratroopers.
Poland has accused Russia of masterminding the crisis. But Russian President Vladimir Putin says Western countries are ultimately responsible for the migrant crisis. And that's it for this edition of The World Today. I'll be back shortly with more news from across the continent in Africa Live. Thanks for watching. China Global Television Network. We bring you the latest from Sudan amid reports that five protesters died in Saturday's protest. Eritrea condemns U.S. sanctions over its al alleged involvement in the Ethiopian conflict. 
and Uganda begins vaccinating 12 to 18-year-olds against COVID-19 even as it battles vaccine hesitancy. Hello and welcome to CGTN or China Global Television Network. This is Africa Live, the program that brings you African and global news from all perspectives. I'm Mahia Mutwa in Nairobi. Well, we begin in Sudan where media network Al Jazeera has reported Sudanese security forces arrested its cartoon bureau chief El Musalmi El Kabashi. Protests continue across the country. Witnesses and medics say five protesters were killed on Saturday as tens of thousands of people demonstrated against the military in the capital Khartoum and other cities. The coup has drawn international criticism and massive protests in the streets of the capital of Khartoum and elsewhere in the country. Well, let's get the latest on the situation there from Naba Mohideen, who joins us on the phone, on the phone now from Khartoum. Naba, uh, what is the situation in Khartoum today? Uh, hi, uh, there is more protests are planned and there are some calls uh, for protests uh, heading to the Prime Minister office where he is in house arrest. Some activists are calling for a protest on November 17th, uh, going to uh, the Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok's uh, house. Uh, also, political parties are still uh, de-recognizing the military uh, sovereign council and all of the procedures made by General Al-Burhan. Uh, the country now is suffering a political gap and the sovereign council, uh, because the sovereign council is not an executive body, so still there is a political gap. And, uh, yeah, people, uh, people are frustrated and more protests are blank. And now, but what are authorities there saying about the arrest of Al Jazeera bureau chief uh, in Khartoum and why he was arrested? Uh, it happened before, after Al Bashir also. Um, actually, people think this is a black spot because Sudan has already gained a lot regarding the freedom of, of expression after Al Bashir also. Uh, the military uh, investigation, uh, they don't want. Uh, journalists and outlets to cover the protests and cover the injuries and the casualties. So, yeah, I'm just, way, just covering the protests and the ongoing development, just like other channels. But authorities issued restrictions and directives and said to journalists uh, to not cover the protests and not, to not cover the political turmoil and uh, to just say life is uh, restored to normality. All right, Naba, thank you very much for speaking to us on Africa Live. Naba Mohideen there in Khartoum. Moving on, Eritrea has condemned sanctions imposed on it by the United States, saying that it indicates a continuation of Washington's, quote, misguided and hostile policy. The targeted parties are Eritrea's military as well as some individuals and entities based in the East African country. This includes the ruling party, the People's Front for Democracy and Justice, the Eritrean Information Ministry, Ministry has said in a statement that the sanctions are being used to inflict suffering on the country and spark political unrest. Ethiopia has also denounced the sanctions on Eritrea, calling for them to be cancelled. Addis Ababa says the real target of sanctions and other tough actions should be the Tigray rebels. Washington has warned that it is pre prepared to take action on other parties playing a role in the conflict. Early in the unrest in Tigray, Eritrea sent in troops to aid its Ethiopian ally, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. A Nigerian army general and three soldiers have been killed in an attack by Islamic State West Africa province militants, according to the army. The troops encountered ice warp fighters in Borno State's Askira Uba local government area. 
An army spokesperson said several militants were killed. Military sources and residents said the ISWAP fighters attacked Askira town on Saturday morning with at least 12 gun trucks. The militants burnt houses, shops and a school, forcing some residents to flee. The northeastern Borno state is at the center of a 12-year-long insurgency. Although military operations are ongoing, the violence there continues. In Sierra Leone, the death toll from a fuel tanker explosion has risen to 144. This is from a previous estimate of 115. The incident occurred just over a week ago in the capital, Freetown. The National Disaster Management Agency reported that a truck and a fuel tanker collided as the tanker was heading to a filling station. The explosion happened while people were trying to collect fuel from a leaking tanker after the collision. As Sierra Leone's Ministry of Health says 57 people are still receiving treatment and 11 of them remain in critical condition. UN climate talks ended on Saturday after two weeks of deliberations among nearly 200 delegations in Scotland. The takeaways are a deal targeting fossil fuels that have for the first time been included in a COP agreement. This has been linked to Article 6 of the Paris Treaty on Climate Change that will set the rules for an international carbon trading system. The aim remains to keep global temperatures from rising above 1.5 degrees, failure of which scientists say could cause irre irreversible damage. Our vulnerable countries, however, remain concerned about promised climate financing from rich nations. The deal offered a promise to double adaptation finance by 2025. India successfully pushed for a change to the clause of phasing out ease of coal to phasing down in a last-minute move. Well, what's the message the COP26 delegates are sending to the world with its latest deal? Let's bring in Ulrich Steenkamp, the program's officer of Earth Life. He joins us via Zoom now from Johannesburg, South Africa. Uh, Ulrich, thank you for joining us. The coal deal was watered down from phasing out to phasing down at the last minute. What does this mean for the battle against climate change and for African countries who are still dependent on coal? Well, what it does mean is that we will not be seeing an end of um, coal anytime soon and there's zero commitment for them to actually um, go out and, and end our dependency on coal. Us as developing nations, we do need um, energy and uh, coal is a, is a good way of doing so, but there are other means and more environmentally friendly means for um, African countries to develop. And what would be best is if we can actually develop in a way that is more just and fair and not uh, repeat the mistakes of what the developed world has done, which has led to this escalation in climate change. And Ulrich, the climate talks ended on Saturday, as we heard earlier, so we can probably look at the big picture now. What are the biggest wins and losses for the African continent as the summit now closes? Well, for, for starters, the, the, the biggest losses is that there is still a... a a dependence on coal and that coal and a lot of other fossil fuels remain to be on the trajectory of most of the countries. So we will still continue to pollute, although they're now scaling down with what they've now termed as phasing down. But um, we need them to phase out because um, Africa, especially sub-Saharan Africa, um, heats up twice as much as what the global average temperatures are. And we already have a water and food crisis issues all over the continent. So we need, we need more stricter measures. That is one of the bad things that's been happening. But a good thing that has come out of this is the increased funding for adaptation and 
not so much on mitigation projects, but um, we there is some funding for for sub-Saharan Africa and Africa as a whole, basically to develop in a more just and fair way, and also to have a just transition from uh, dependencies on fossil fuels to um, renewable energies and other less low-carbon intensive uh, projects. All right, Ulrich, thank you very much for speaking to us on Africa Live. Ulrich Steenkamp, the Programs Officer at Earth Life, joining us live there from Johannesburg. Well, it's time for us to take a short break. Here's what's coming up on the program. Uganda begins vaccinating 12 to 18-year-olds against COVID-19, even as the nation battles vaccine hesitancy. Nigeria is my home. 160 million vibrant, ambitious individuals constantly seeking the perfect self-expression. It is these people who inspired me to be that person that is seen, to be a voice that is heard, and ultimately to be the anchor that I am. I have to tap in, tune in, and turn on the very best qualities within me to deliver the news. I'm Richard Nta, an anchor for CGTN. Welcome back. Now, the head of Libya's High Council of State is calling supporters to boycott the December 24th vote. The Western-based legislative consultative body says election laws must be amended and members of parliament in Western Libya are calling for the same. More now with CGTN's Adel Mahroui. While world leaders at a recent Paris conference insisted that Libya should begin its democratic elections on December 24, the Western-based High Council of State holds tight to its ultimatum. After meeting with Western politicians, the HCS called for immediate amendments to election laws which the rival Eastern Parliament unilaterally issued. If their demands are not met, Western politicians say they will boycott the vote. We all agree that the elections should be postponed until new legislations are issued and we hold parliamentary elections prior to the presidential election. Currently, there is no agreement between us over the current election laws. These laws were not built over the constitutional declaration. What we fear is that the insistence on holding the elections this way could backfire and make Libya fall into another violent episode. The election laws set the legal framework for the voting schedule and who can run. Currently, they allow almost all Eastern politicians, including Parliament Speaker Aqila Saleh and the commander of the Libyan National Army, Khalifa Haftar, to nominate themselves for president. Both have temporarily stepped aside from their positions three months before the vote, as the disputed election legislation dictates. Some Western-affiliated politicians, like interim Prime Minister Abdul Hamid Dbaiba, would be barred from running, as he still holds a government position, with just six weeks remaining on the vote. Calls for boycott, if implemented, could lead to a new round of division. 
it could create a new crisis in Libya. Militias could return to the activities that fueled war. I don't think the international community will allow that. The 20 countries who joined the Paui conference all called to hold the elections on time. The United Nations Support Mission in Libya urged the Eastern Parliament to amend the elections laws. Earlier this month, the UN Secretary General's Libya envoy, Jan Kobish, said that, quote, only an inclusive legal framework will pave the way for a credible and inclusive electoral process. World leaders appear to be taking a step back from wide international... Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, CGTN uh, Africa Live. And that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for uh, today. Uh, the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, we've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access uh, to uh, today's program, uh, just go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and of course we'll end uh, with uh, the music of uh, Wes Montgomery. And uh, we will, of course, uh, see you uh, for the next uh, broadcast uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And, uh, of course, uh, we will uh, return to uh, the Pan-African Journal. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.